0: So we're learning how to keep things really simple. And this can be especially challenging on the last day, because often there's a lot moving in our hearts and in our bodies. Maybe that's okay, that a lot's moving, there's a lot here to feel, a lot here to relax with and give Permission, allow it to do what it's going to do, these thoughts, these emotions, these sensations. So in the middle of all this movement, is it possible to allow the body to find its natural ease, just as best it can now. And can we invite the heart to find its natural ease as best it can? And we're not expecting perfect ease We're more interested in this deeper release, the wisdom and the love in the heart that has made peace with the imperfect conditions, the imperfect and changing conditions of the moment. So where the ease really comes from in the end is this wisdom and love knowing how to relate to these changing and imperfect conditions with a lot of ease, a lot of trust, a lot of letting go, letting nature be nature. Here's a short quote from Ajahn Chah, this Buddhist monk from Thailand, died in the early 90s. Do not try to become anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at, <coughs> Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Of course, we'll lose that confidence in being open, being present in this allowing way. We'll lose it. We'll get caught in a drama energetically. The body and the mind will get tight because of that. But then at some point, wisdom, wisdom awareness will re- will show up, re-emerge. Oh, it's like this. Things are tight like this. And right there will be the confidence. Well maybe, maybe it's okay that things are tight like this right now. Maybe I can relate, I can open this tension in a wise and kind way. Not compound it, but instead allow it to arise, and then in its own way, in its own time, allow that tension to cease. So we're making peace with the conditions of the moment, whatever those conditions might be, moment by moment. Learning to have a peaceful, way of relating to whatever conditions, circumstances, feelings, thoughts come and go. So let's continue now in silence. Although it's very simple, there's definitely something beautiful and powerful about sitting here right in the middle, valuing openness, valuing, allowing, and letting things be. Even those experiences that are ambiguous or wormy, unpleasant in some subtle way, numbness, for example, everything belongs. Everything will come and go. Do I need to turn it into a personal problem, whatever it is that's showing up right now? Or can I let it be? As Sylvia Borstein says or wrote, Everything is always breathtakingly, the only way it can be. My heart, resting in equanimity, responds with compassion. And then, finally, for the last minute or so, sitting, valuing this quality of being open, unafraid, sensing the safety in allowing things to come and go, to be what they are. And finally, let's notice that this capacity to be present with this wisdom also is a kind of beautiful love and compassion. Notice the tenderness in being present. So we have about 15 or 20 minutes um, for some questions, and I have a number here that people left on the bulletin board, but maybe we'll alternate between. Any questions that are live now, including if you're one of the people who wrote a question out, sometimes it's uh, useful for you just to re-articulate it right now, people can get a, a better sense than me reading the note. So, any questions before I go to the notes that are alive for you about the talks, about the practice? Yes, please. Yeah, and this is always the case with religious spiritual systems or forms. It's like uh, they travel through time when they get objectified or, you know, turned into a concept, but then it's our job as an active spiritual practitioner to make it useful, functional, real, in our experience. Same with the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So it's, it's like code right, that informs our actual living. It doesn't just exist as a beautiful idea that we worship, which is the tendency for humans to kind of objectify the Buddha, for example, and, and to just feel grateful to have, have a connection with that wisdom or whatever but it's more useful, more functional, like how can I use this concept or whatever to actually inform how I'm living? So Buddha being wakefulness, Dhamma, the actuality of the present moment, like what's actually showing up. And then Sangha, when there is the intimacy of Buddha knowing Dhamma, then Sangha is that enlightened action, that skillful engagement in the world. Because it's not coming out of our normal relationship, which is greedy, fearful, angry, disconnected. It's coming out of Buddha knowing dharma, which, you know, for lack of a better word, just call it being awake or being intimate. And then action, engagement, what we say, how we are, how we relate. It's really beautiful because of the intimacy it's coming out of. And it also gets used in a kind of more common way as a spiritual community because the idea is that when you're hanging out with the Madison Insight community and any given gathering, hopefully one or two people in moments are sangha, meaning they're intimate, they're really there, and how they're relating, how they're showing up is really beautiful. Not everyone, (laughs) and not any one person all the time. But you know you can you can sense that, and it's inspiring to be in communities where people, in moments, really have that natural beauty. They're just being real, really connected, and coming out of that place. And it's basically giving permission to all of us that we can be real. We can feel what we're feeling. We don't have to pretend, or and uh, yeah, it's really great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So one question here. How can we be more accepting of the impermanence of all things without getting caught up in the suffering, fear of future suffering? Well, the interesting thing about the impermanence of all things, the radical impermanence, it's not just that we're born and then we die. That's kind of a gross level of impermanence that it gets our attention because it's undeniable. But impermanence is much more radical, like as the mind gets more sensitive, we see that whatever we mean by reality, you know, the way it is, dharma, that it is here and then it ceases, and then it's here and then it ceases. So, you know, again, it's not easy in words, but there's this staccato flashing and... Um, so whatever mood, whatever reaction, whatever joy I'm experiencing, it's really moment by moment. And the thing is, we've been living in that radical impermanence all along. So it's, we may wake up to it, we may start to notice how ephemeral everything is, but it's not like it's suddenly ephemeral. <laughs> so like in terms of the fear that tends to come up when we're experiencing impermanence, It's because the mind, surface level of mind, wrongly interprets things. I used to be safe, I used to have solid ground, but now I don't have solid ground. But but once the heart gets a little bit more familiar, it realizes I've never had solid ground. I'm never going to have solid ground. And we seem to be okay with that, right? Human beings, the whole world seems to be okay with the way it is. So why does my mind have to dramatize, kind of catastrophize the reality of impermanence? Take that Han has a great little line. He says, uh, I forget what the, the front part of it is, something like, don't worry about impermanence, or yay, rah, rah, impermanence. And then the second part is, it makes all things possible. Right? If there wasn't this radical impermanence of things arising and ceasing, life wouldn't have this creative, dynamic, fresh... That's why when you... I, I don't know about you, but I walked down from the cabin, uh, which is on the property this morning, and, you know, it's just... It always has a kind of beautiful feeling after a storm and the snow and the sense of spring coming in. But, you know... I've experienced something like that a lot, just like we've experienced the in-breath or the out-breath a lot. But when we're really there for an in-breath, it knocks our socks off because we've never been there for that in-breath, right? There's something alive and fresh, something that is, it's less about the in-breath and more about the fundamental creativity, unstoppable, creativity of life, of this, right? And the other half is the fundamental, unstoppable ceasing of everything, can't hold on like sand through the fingers. And both of those are true, and it makes us feel very alive and very awake when we're attuned to that Level of impermanence, so it's a lot of it is just to keep going as we sense impermanence, as we sense that we're not in control, that life is ungovernable. These are all different words for anicca. It doesn't just mean change; it also means things are unreliable, not dependable. Right? Just whatever word or phrases really illuminate what we don't want to see. <laughs> Because that's what we need to make peace with. And then we realize, in a funny way, this is what I've been waiting for. That it really frees up this life when our heart is more and more in line with change, with the unreliable or ungovernableness. Any questions out there? Yeah. So how do you make peace with the um, new destruction diet? Yeah, How do you make peace with the humans destroying the biosphere? Or just any kind of action we see in ourselves or in our partners or collectively that's self-destructive. Because it really breaks our heart. It's one thing when something happens and nobody can stop it. And it's another thing to see people or peoples self-destruct. But the thing is... It's also nature. You know, like when an asteroid hits the planet and there's tremendous destruction, we kind of shrug and go, well, causes and conditions, you know, what can you do? We live in a world where there are asteroids zinging through the, you know, the solar system, and it's just a matter of time. But when somebody is being destructive, you know, acting out, you can see this. We see it in our own relationships. It's very poignant to me, um, just being in a long-term relationship, when I see myself acting in ways that's destructive for the relationship. And I have enough awareness to see it, but not enough clarity for it to be any other way, you know. And, uh, you know, how we get defensive or we want to We're mean and we want to sort of make our point by making the other person hurt or, you know, things like that that are not that uncommon. And our job first, because if we personalize it, then we're going to feel like using hate or judgment or giving up on humanity or giving up on the world or giving up on our partner or giving up on ourselves. So that, and neither of those strategies are helpful. And the thing about seeing that self-destructiveness as a movement of nature is it allows us to get closer, to really get close, really feel into it. And it's in that place of intimacy where there may or may not be some way of participating with the destruction of the biosphere or the you know, environmental damage that's being done by human activity there may be a way to participate in it that's skillful. Maybe it won't stop it, maybe it'll slow it down, maybe it will ease the way into destruction, you know. But that's all we get is finding ways to live that are intimate and wholesome. We don't get to determine how our relationships with our partner are gonna unfold, or how the biosphere and the sort of ecological balance on the planet is going to unfold, we don't get to say. We just get to participate in it. And we get at the choice participating skillfully in a way that's enlivening and freeing and helpful, or participating unskillfully in a way that causes layers more suffering down or contraction down. Thanks for the question. And here's another written question. Some of the strategies you have mentioned, choosing (coughs) what to pay attention to and discerning the underlying feeling are fairly complex intellectually and seem to require a lot of thought. Could you say something about the relationship between these strategies and the non-conceptual focus on breath-body during formal practice. How to move from one to the other? How to strike the appropriate balance? That's a good question. And it, it goes to that third part of the instruction. So check in how, how the heart's doing. Is it feeling safe? Is there anything I can do to support the safety of the heart? Maybe yes, maybe no. But caring about safety. Middle part is the basic practice which is bringing the mind, the heart into balance with alertness and relaxation and really sensing that there's no end. Like, more tranquility is always better as long as it's in balance with alertness. More alertness is always good as long as there's enough tranquility to balance it. And then the third is the wisdom piece. And generally we get wisdom from the outside. We hear something from the Buddha or from a wise friend, and it kind of, were reflective enough to know, well, that's interesting, that's provocative. And we say something like, let me think about that. Let me reflect on it. Let me see if that concept can be used to illuminate my actual experience. Help me see what I haven't seen before. So there is some right thought, skillful thought involved with this wisdom because usually, sometimes you get intuitive wisdom, but even that tends to have been supported by hearing something, thinking about something in the past. You, The mind was ripe to get it intuitively. But a lot of times like hearing that things are changing in a radical way, that's a bit of conceptual information. That hopefully kind of gets in there somewhere so that we, you know, oh yeah, is that true? You know, and we kind of use it to look, to open, to feel, to be more intimate. Does it help me get more intimate? Because pretending that things are permanent is a real distortion in the way of intimacy. Because I can't actually be close to my, like even something practical like my relationship with my spouse, Because if I'm really close, really, like, showing up in an interaction with my spouse, any idea, any kind of fixed idea, my spouse, to death do us part, you know, any kind of static sense won't line up with the actual dance of just sitting down or taking a walk or being with somebody, because it's very alive with change. It's very alive with it being unreliable. Like, when I'm actually in that place, I don't know what's going to happen next. And if I think I know what's going to happen next, I've already disconnected from the intimacy of the moment. And I'm in my idea and I'm probably protecting, trying to massage the interaction to fit my idea. Some kind of, it's like a microaggression on the, on the relationship. When we're in our thoughts, in our static thoughts about it. So uh, we want to um, use the information but bring it into the present moment, like a reframing. And that's necessary as long as we're not seeing clearly, then we do need these pointing out instructions to challenge. It's not so much to tell us what the truth is, but to illuminate how the truth, how intimacy is being distorted, right? So these teachings are more about removing wrong view than about being right view. So like, again, just because it came up in the previous question, impermanence. Impermanence is more about like the idea, the spiritual teaching, that everything's changing, there's no ground, it's all ephemeral, not reliable, everything's uncertain, Maybe not so, right? So that's there as a spiritual teaching to illuminate how unconsciously we cling to the idea of things being static and permanent and dependable. And that's what needs to be uprooted, that tendency. We don't want to become a fundamentalist about impermanence, you know. And then we got to go up in street corners and... Talk to people about like, do you believe in impermanence? You know, and it gets weird and worse when people go that direction. So it's a that's why in Buddhism we call it a skillful means, skillful means to uproot delusion, to uproot the tendencies in the heart to not be intimate. Because nature will teach us what the truth is, like coming into alignment with our own experience. That's how we actually realize impermanence, not with the idea. But we just, like, uh, I really like in very early Buddhism, like in the discourses that were repeated even in the discourses, right? So in the Pali Canon, the early Buddhist sort of collection of teachings of the Buddha, they mention some of the discourses, that were taught early on in the Buddha's teaching career, right? Because he taught for 40, 45 years, a so long time. And uh, in those early teachings, you know, they—it didn't. it's just interesting that they preserved them. They didn't impose kind of... Because over the centuries, they systematized the teachings, even in early Buddhism. And so the way freedom was talked about, not so much... in in kind of grand terms like the absolute cessation of greed, anger, and delusion, even though that's very common in early Buddhism. It was more about being peaceful with conditions. Like that's how a wise person, a free person, was described. Somebody who's free with conditions. Somebody who doesn't have any resistance to the way that it is right now. So... All we need is intimacy, because if we can really be intimate, then there's no resistance with the conditions in the moment. There's peace with the conditions. But how to get intimate? Well, we need a couple of things, including teachings, like the teaching on impermanence, to help illuminate the distortion, the habit of presuming permanence. That's a big habit in our mind, to presume permanence. We don't see it, it's, it's like a so commonplace, we don't see all the ways we presume permanent. It's like we're going to go home. And I'm not saying that we're not going to go home, but the, the reality is we don't really know. I mean, sure, statistically, you know, out of a group of 60 folks, most of us, most of the time, are going to make it home, you know, at the end of the retreat. But the reality is we don't know and sometimes people don't make it home so can we live with that you know can we stay attuned to that or are we going to just get by by presuming permanence p- presuming reliability so part of it is is uh not presuming the teachings on impermanence are uh, difficult change is what's difficult impermanence is a liberating teaching even seeing dukkha seeing suffering is liberating but the change is hard for us you know when we've been very dependent on our imperfect security but it's still our security but it's imperfect it doesn't really hold up it takes a lot of patching up we're never done patching it up but it's our security Right, it's hard to leave that behind, and that's that's part of what this teaching on impermanence is about. So maybe I'll leave it there. We'll come back at uh, five to eleven. Maybe we'll see what's going on, but I'll give a, just a few more teachings for maybe ten minutes there, and then we'll start the closing circle. But I'm going to pass it on to Julie, who has some information about ending the retreat. Do you want to use the mic, Julie?